Hey, this is Kenny. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. The goal of the show is to inspire and give insight into the healthcare system through the lens of an anesthesiologist. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the channel so that you get new episodes as they come out. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Drapes podcast. If you guys have been listening along to this season, this season's been all about financial literacy. And this episode is a little bit different than the typical trajectory we've been doing where we've typically been talking about personal finance. This topic is going to be more about the finances of anesthesiology as well as what the recruitment process is like. So on today's show, we're going to have with us Dr. Christopher DeVignan, who's one of our attendings at Rhode Island Hospital. He's the associate chair of the department, as well as the site director for the Merriam Hospital here in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, He's one of our great teachers in the department. We were just on call last night together and talking about what it takes to be a great teacher and how everyone expects all of these new young grads to be on our teaching award list. But Dr. DeVignan consistently makes this list and he was gracious enough to come on this podcast. This was an episode that I originally had intended on doing, but he gave this lecture to our senior class who's about to graduate in two months. And I thought all the information he presented was very valuable and engaging. And I thought more people in the world should hear it. So Dr. DeVignan, thanks for coming on this podcast and sharing your knowledge with all of us. Thanks very much, Kenny. Uh, I'm excited to do this. And uh, it's very fun to be able to, you know, um, provide information to everybody's listening. I was just talking about how my dog's probably going to be barking in the back, and now now you can obviously hear me. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so can you just give me a little bit of a description of what your day-to-day role is in terms of your uh, administrative position? Um, Obviously, we know you're an anesthesiologist majority of the time, but also you have this administrative role. So what do you typically do for that aspect of your career? Yeah, then that's role has evolved quite a bit over my career, Kenny. Um, I have a role within the department where I um, help with physician recruitment and staff planning and um, direct one of our clinical sites. Um, so that basically entails a, a large number of um, meetings to help organize our service line at the, the Miriam Hospital. Uh, I also have a role as medical director at that hospital. So um, in practice um, overseeing quality and operational metrics for the operating room as a whole. So a couple of different pieces there, some of which will play more into this conversation than others. Great. And this conversation will kind of have two halves to it. So the first half, we're going to focus on the billing side of anesthesia. And then the second half, we're going to get more into the recruiting stuff that you do. But let's start with um, the anesthesia billing aspect. How did you get so facile or so interested in the money behind how we get paid for the anesthesia we provide? Yeah, this has been sort of a, a long-term uh, process in, in many ways. I remember getting a lecture actually as a resident, similar to the one I gave you guys uh, a couple months ago, and um, realizing how little I knew about the behind-the-scenes actions that were translating our clinical work every day into revenue for the department and subsequently you know, a paycheck for, for me. Um, in my role in the department, so we used to be a private practice, as you know, prior to the residency starting. And uh, in that forum, 
the physicians had to help manage the business. Um, and one of my roles in that practice um, was to help in the business development. And again, to do that, uh, you need to really understand the nuts and bolts behind how you were generating revenue, how you were spending that money, um, how the sort of overall process evolved. Um, much of what I learned was, you know, what they would call on-the-job training, meaning uh, a lot of reading, a lot of uh, asking people questions, going to meetings to learn about um, you know billing processes. So it's been over you know 15, 20 years of this this um, uh, process has, has occurred. That's great. Um, so let's put me in the position of the patient. Let's say I have a torn rotator cuff and I'm coming in for a rotator cuff repair. How is my anesthesia going to be billed for that type of surgical case? Yeah, so typically, uh, so modern anesthesia billing all started in the probably 50s when Medicare uh, assumed a large role in healthcare finance. Um, billing for anesthesia really encompasses two elements. There's an element that is due with the complexity of the anesthesia for a case. And then there's an element that occurs related to the time we spend, right? Since as anesthesia professionals, we don't control the duration of surgery. Um, when this system was developed, they decided that we would utilize those two elements to um, measure or provide balance to the reimbursement process. Um, so, for example, you're getting your rotator cuff surgery. That's an intermediate level complexity with regard to anesthesia. Um, and so you get a certain number of what they would call base units, uh, or a certain number of units to start the case. That would encompass the pre-op evaluation when I go and interview you and get your history, do your physical exam make the anesthetic plan, um, as well as the induction process. Um, and then subsequently, there would be time units, so um, units attributed for the duration of the procedure. So every 15 minutes, you get one unit um, uh, that contributes to the, the billing process or the, the bill that's being submitted to the insurance carriers. Um, to make things a little more complicated in your example, if you do a regional technique as part of your anesthetic, uh, that can potentially be billed separately uh, as an adjunct, um, depending on, again, on how you uh, perform that procedure. Uh, so something very simple can actually sort of entail a number of complexities in the backdrop for whoever's doing the coding and submitting the bill to insurance. And who's setting those prices for how we charge uh, for each base unit and for like each procedure? Who's determining how what those prices are in the market? Yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and just to kind of go back quickly, the the units are really developed to try to create fairness, right? So that someone who does a particular type of case that is either super complex or super long is getting reimbursed in a fair way relative to their peer who is doing a different case of different complexity or duration. Um, but you also bring up another variable, which is who's paying the bill. Um, depending on which insurance company is paying, each of those units may be reimbursed at a different rate. So government payers like Medicare uh, pay a rate determined by the government, and that's sort of um, established nationally. There are variations state by state, but they're relatively small. Um, but a private insurance company like United or Aetna or Blue Cross will negotiate individually with each anesthesia group for the rate that they're going to pay. Uh, so they may pay one group a different rate than another. Um, Typically, um, private or commercial insurers pay significantly more than government insurers in our specialty. So in all specialties, Medicare pays less than a commercial insurance product, but typically that less is maybe 80% of the commercial product. In anesthesia, 
uh, we are unfortunately getting paid about 30% of the commercial product by Medicare. So it's a, it's a big difference um, and can make a big impact on revenue for a, a given practice. And let's say I'm getting like a knee replacement and our typical anesthesia for that is either general or spinal. Um, how is, what are the distinctions that we make there when someone who, let's say I'm getting a spinal anesthetic, but I'm also getting sedation on top of that. What is the billing? Um, how does that work? Yeah. So interestingly, uh, the type of anesthesia we deliver really doesn't impact billing at all. Meaning if I do a general anesthetic or a spinal or an epidural or a sedation case, um they are all billed at the same rate and again that rate is based on the complexity of the case and the duration um if you combine anesthetic types uh again you don't bill for each of them separately it's, it's a single bill for the anesthetic itself now we started to talk about this a little bit and we didn't really uh, complete the uh the cycle but if you do a regional technique that is designed for post-operative care mm -hmm. uh, that can be billed as an additional product uh, in the same way if you did a central line or arterial line or any procedure that is um, an adjunct to the anesthetic is not really part of the anesthetic itself. Those are billed as a procedural code. Um, and that and that can be a significant amount of revenue for a given practice, depending on what type of cases you're doing. And that's a good point, because every time we do a, a block or a regional block, the, the OR or the pre-op nurse is always asking us, is this for uh, uh, post-op analgesia or like intra-op or primary anesthesia? And what what distinctions do you make in patients? Like why would you say patient A is going to get this as a primary anesthetic and patient B is going to get this regional block as a post-op? Yeah, it, it, it really, to your point, depends on what the goal of the block is, right? If you're doing a block, say, for example, a spinal, uh, but it could be any regional block that is really there for the surgery itself, and that's the primary way we're getting the patient through the surgery, then that is uh, billed as the anesthetic. Um, as you know, often when we do a regional block, we do a regional block that lasts for many, many hours, uh, well beyond the surgery itself. Um, and it does get a little gray when the block is placed preoperatively. And even though it's there for post-operative care, depending on how much of a role it plays in your intraoperative care, as to say, if you could, uh, sorry, if you could do the surgery without additional anesthetics, um, with just the block as its uh, primary anesthetic, you may be, um, should build that as the primary aesthetic. Whereas if you uh, are doing the block and that is not sufficient for the anesthetic itself, you need to put on a significant um, other layer of anesthesia, then we would typically go for it as the post-op. Depending on your practice model um, and your how conservative you are in your billing practices, uh, you may approach this in different ways. Um, for example, some practices to remove that gray area would say, hey, we're going to place post-operative analgesia blocks post-operatively. Mm -hmm. uh, so therefore, there's no confusion as to how the anesthetic for the case was delivered. It was given as a separate entity. Um, obviously, there's, there's elements of patient care that you need to take into consideration, because in that case, you have to then uh, give some analgesics, probably narcotics, or you have to wake up the patient with some discomfort, uh, place the block in the proposal phase, and, and those can all be more complex. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, as long as we can articulate those things reasonably well to uh, and insurers carry this auditing us, uh, you, we would typically be, you know, they'd be satisfied with those elements. But but it is a little bit of a gray zone. And that's where, um, you know, having a professional billing service do your um, billing for the practice comes into role, uh, comes into play. Hmm. Very cool. And it, as an anesthesiologist, you're, oh, depending on the practice, obviously, you may not, at least our practice, you're not going to be one-on-one -on -one with your patient. You're going to be more supervising multiple rooms. 
Can you tell us uh, the distinction of when you're working with CRNAs versus when you're working with residents, um, how those two differ and what your role is in that sort of care team aspect? Yeah, that's actually a great point. And this was this has changed during my career. So in probably the last 10 years, um, there's been some evolution in this. Um, so when I provide care supervising uh, a nurse anesthetist and we do this care as a team, the bill is submitted for both of us. Uh, half of the bill is submitted from the nurse anesthetist and half of the bill is submitted from the physician who's um, supervising. Now I use the word supervision, which is maybe a little unfair because uh, there's actually a, excuse me, a distinction between supervision and medical direction. Um, they have different requirements and they bill differently at the insurance level. Um, but if we remove that for the moment and say that, okay, we're submitting a bill for care provided as a team with a nurse anesthetist and a physician, uh, functionally half of the bill is submitted by the nurse anesthetist and half by the physician. As you probably know, as a physician, I can um, work in a team model with up to four CRNAs in the medical direction model. Uh, so the billing uh, for each of those cases is attributed half to me and half to the CRNA in the room. When we are supervising a resident, um, we cover less residents because part of our job there is uh, the educational element. Um, we typically cover two or less trainees. When I was a resident, that meant that the attending billed their half and the other half of the billing went um, without collections. So we couldn't bill for the resident services. That changed uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. And now we can actually bill for both components. In that circumstance, there's a what they call a modifier. Basically, it says that, hey, I'm submitting a bill for the whole case, even though I'm covering two residents. So I'm submitting a bill for two cases at the exact same time. Um, and those units all get attributed to, to my uh, billing number. So at this point, we collect the same amount of money from either scenario for the given case, hmm. um, assuming we're medically directing the CRNA or uh, supervising covering a resident in their educational process. But that's new um, as of about, like I said, 10 years ago or so. And you kind of saw- There are some elements- Go ahead, please. Sorry. Uh, I say there are some elements that we didn't talk about quickly, which is the difference between medical directing and supervising a CRA. Um, if you don't meet all the elements for medical direction, which functionally encompass a higher level of involvement, you still can submit a bill, uh, but the bill is collecting less revenue because of the different involvement by the attending. And you saw us or this hospital shift from supervising um, CRNAs basically almost 100% of the time to now supervising um, residents. Has that changed the financial situation of the department at all? Or I guess kind of what you're echoing, it really shouldn't have. Yeah, in essence, the revenue per room should remain very constant. Um, where it does have an impact is what the cost structure is to the department. Um, as you know, a CRNA's cost is their salary plus their benefits plus um, whatever other fringe that goes along with their competition package. Residents get paid in a little bit different way, and each hospital system will attribute that cost to the department in a different uh, different manner. Um, the government does provide some compensation to the hospital for the residents, um, depending on how many residents we have. So that also plays a role in that cost structure. But as you noted, the amount of revenue we collect shouldn't be different. It's just how much does it cost to deliver that same care? Um, and you have to attribute the costs associated with the residency in general. Um, all the um, 
provision of education, lectures, uh, physical plant areas that need to be adapted. Uh, all of those things have to be in sort of incorporated into that that structure or that calculation. And then outside of supervising rooms, anesthesiologists also have the role of responding to airways anywhere in the hospital. Um, we also are now doing epidurals at a women infants hospital. Where is the line of distinction for what you're allowed to do while you're still supervising operating rooms that have uh, currently have a patient going on who's undergoing surgery and anesthesia? Yeah, to be able to bill for medical direction of the CRNA, um, there are a number of elements that are required. As you noted, continuous involvement in the care from start to finish um, is probably the largest element. You have to be there for induction. You have to participate in emergence. You have to monitor in intervals. And you have to provide post-operative care. You can do some things while providing that service. Typically, they are things that um, are short in duration, are emergent, or otherwise wouldn't limit you from providing that care to the patient who's under anesthesia in your operating room. The things that are denoted very specifically by CMS, which is the governing body for Medicare, are um, emergency procedures like an intubation that you mentioned, labor epidurals, um, responding to emergencies in recovery, and the admissions of patients in preoperative area. And if you think about it in our practice, those are the things that we are doing most readily while still um, going through the preoperative, sorry, the operating theater and, and involving ourselves with the patient care. So we might see the next patient, might do that pre-op exam. Um, again, we might go do labor epidural or go to the um, floor to do an intubation. Uh, so all those things are then allowed to be billed uh, while still providing care. We are lucky because we have a large group practice whereby you can assume that we are going to have help should their need uh, arise to be in two places at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, that may or may not be the case everywhere. Hmm. And last question sort of on this topic. You also saw your group go from a private practice group to then basically becoming part of the hospital system here. What were some of the biggest changes that you've seen in our department because we're now part of LPG instead of being its own separate entity? Yeah, that's a good question. The The biggest change probably was in the governing structure. So every practice has some structure that allows it to make decisions and allows it to evolve in a changing anesthesia marketplace or a healthcare marketplace. Um, when we were a private group, we had 18 shareholders. Uh, so each of us had an ownership stake in the practice. Uh, when we transitioned to Lifespan Physician Group, we gave up that piece of our governance and entered into a different governance structure. In this case, we had a chair. We have uh, what we call an executive committee, which is uh, a number of people in the group who are in leadership roles who meet monthly to go over um, either problems or strategic goals things to sort of improve the department's outlook as we move forward. Um, we also now have an overlying structure above us though. We have LPG is a large physician group. It has its own set of um, governance. There are board of trustees that manage LPG. LPG has a president and uh, vice presidents who create budgets. And so all of those elements now put pressure on the way we deliver care. Uh, I think it was in your last podcast with Shaima talking about how you might have to choose whether you see you know, four patients an hour or two patients an hour based on some other administrative decision. And so we have now those same administrative decisions giving us guidance um, or at least negotiating with us on how we're going to provide safe, high quality care in a reasonably efficient manner.
I think the highest compliment is when you can refer to a previous podcast that I could do because it shows that you've been listening along. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, it's always fun when these things kind of uh, come together in sequence, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's that was great. That was a great overview of sort of the building of anesthesia and the nuts and bolts of where this money is coming from and how it supports our department uh, to keep improving, keep uh, providing great uh, equitable care to our patients um, and making sure that uh, basically everyone is well taken care of. But I want to shift now over to the recruitment process, which you play a huge role in. Um, Obviously, I'm graduating soon, doing fellowship, but also actively looking for jobs. I've seen a lot of my colleagues actively look for jobs. One of the most common places I think people find jobs is on gasworks.com, which is like a website that just promotes different anesthesia jobs. And when Lifespan put out their anesthesia posting, your name and your contact info was the person of contact if anyone was interested in this job. So I imagine there's every job basically has a Chris DeVignan who people are reaching out for. So you have very valuable information, I think, for anyone who's going through this process. But when somebody reaches out to you, what are sort of the next initial steps that you take? Yeah, it, to your point, I think every practice has um, an entry way into looking for a practice. And that's going to be different at each practice. Uh, some practices like ours use a physician. Uh, other Practices use uh, someone in a, in a sort of a more administrative or business role. The for us here, uh, I typically get an email with an expression of interest and a CV uh, and a timeline. Hey, I'm a CA two and I'm interested in your practice, and I'd be ready to start work in August of you know 2024. And that just opens the door for a conversation. Um, all of these recruitments, Kenny, functionally are conversations. Right, it's trying to find a best fit. Every practice's goal should be, and I think probably is, to marry a physician and a practice that have like-minded ideas. Everybody wants to find someone who fits in with the department's culture, who has similar expectations to work and life balance, who has a skill set that matches the clinical needs of the department, that um, is going to be happy ultimately in that practice and in that job. It is best for both parties if you have a fit like that, where someone comes in, they enjoy their work, they do a good job, and the practice benefits from that. So hopefully for most practices, this conversation is open and it's honest, and it explores the various elements that impact um, their faculty or their staff. The hard part is, as you know, as you're going through residency, it's not till you know halfway to three quarters way through that you pick your head up and start to think about what do I actually want in a practice? And you still haven't been exposed to everything that exists in clinical medicine. And you certainly have likely not been exposed to the other elements of practice besides the clinical piece. Um, and it's an interesting paradigm for you to adjust to thinking outside of just, hey, I'm in my room today, here's my three patients, and here's how I'm going to take care of them, to what am I going to do in my quote unquote real job? Um, and there's a lot of variability there. Your real job may be a small practice in a community hospital that's physician only, and your real job may be very similar to what you're doing now, and you may understand that very easily. Your uh, career may take a different pathway, which is uh, equally rewarding, uh, where you do some administrative roles or you take on uh, various um, clinical 
paradigms. Uh, maybe you're in a large practice. Maybe you end up in business. There's so many ways that you can progress through uh, your career uh, in healthcare and in anesthesia. Um, but I think that, again, the the key to this whole conversation is going to be having an open and honest discussion and trying to understand the elements that are going to make you fulfilled in your career. Um, I don't know what your take is as a resident. Um, do you feel like you get exposure to those elements in your early training years? In terms of finding out what I want out of my career? Exactly. And I know it's probably not fair of me to ask you a question on this podcast, but... Oh, it's totally fine. <laughs> I, I think you have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask your attendings uh, what their roles are. Like, you're pretty easy to talk to. So like, I openly talk to you about what your administrative roles are, kind of what your career path has looked like. And uh, I think the more curious you are as a resident, the more you can kind of see like, oh, that's something I could see myself doing, or I want zero part of that in my future career. And the more you just, everyone's individual anesthesiologist career path has been so different, at least I've, at least in our department, I feel like. So the more you just ask questions and figure that out, I think the more you see what fits for you. At least that's how I've kind of taken that approach. And I think that's a great approach, Kenny. I think uh, being inquisitive helps you in, in most circumstances. And to your um, credit, you do that very well. Um, I think that you are right. That there is a lot of diversity in our faculty, and I suspect that is true in many groups. Um, and it gives you a sense of how you can get to different places. When we had this uh, lecture a month or two ago, I think I divided up sort of the way to think about your practice evolution in three components. You have the clinical work, which again, as a resident, you understand. You understand what case diversity is. You understand what it's like to take care of sick patients or healthy patients, whether you want obstetrics or whether you don't. Um, there's the financial compensation. So your actual money that you take home, plus your benefits, plus your vacation, plus uh, all those pieces. The part that is forgotten most often is the middle group, which is your professional development. It's what am I going to do in my career outside of the operating room that's going to fulfill me, that's going to probably help the group, it's going to help the specialty. As physicians, one of the things that we're supposed to do in anesthesia is to evolve our specialty to provide better and better care to patients over time. Um, again, the uh, you've seen probably even just in a short career how new medications can make a huge difference, how um, practice pathways can change uh, the patient's trajectories in, in their care. And so it relies on us to find those interests, to find those uh, outside elements that you can bring to the table. Um, and I think that is something that in your CA2 and early CA3 year as a resident, you really want to start to think about you may not know, but you want to see what are the practices that I'm looking at? What do they have to offer? What are the opportunities that are there for me to progress as a physician um, and evolve my professional development? What kind of mentorship is there? Uh, how do they support me growing as both a person and, and as a physician? Do you feel like most people who reach out to you know what they want in their career? No, and I think that's totally fine. So when people reach out to me with interest in a role, uh, in a, sorry, interest in a job, uh, I often get back to them with the first element. Hey, here's what we have clinically. What are you interested in clinically? Because people often have a sense of what they want there. Right. They may not be accurate in what they think, meaning they may think they want something different than what they ultimately do, but that's, that's normal, right? That's just mm -hmm. the evolution of, of being people. Um, most people have not thought a ton about what they want outside of their career. And that's the time 
in the early conversation where I bring that forward to them and say, hey, this is what I want you to start thinking about. Because when you come for an interview, this is what we're going to talk about with our chair, with our different division directors. Um, it's going to be how do you see yourself integrating? Because like I said at the beginning, at the end of the day, we all want someone who integrates well and who is aligned in their vision and who has uh, a desire to support the department and its mission. Um, and so uh, for me, I often uh, bring that up in an early conversation to hopefully start that thought process. And again, I think we have a high quality practice. Part of that is I think we recruit people who have thought about that process. If someone doesn't put much thought into that by the time they're in the interview, uh, that's a little bit of a red flag for me. Mm -hmm. What percentage of applicants are typically new grads versus um, mid-career changing uh, locations? I would say historically, most are new grads, either finishing a residency or fellowship. There's always a handful of people who are changing mid-career. That seems to be a little more common in the academic world. And I think it's because people are looking for different professional development opportunities. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a private practice environment, because you have often some sort of partnership or shareholder structure, people kind of get locked in a little more to their 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 job and their career. Um, I also think it's hard to change uh, from one practice to another mid-career. You develop habits, you develop patterns, you integrate into a department and its culture. And if you're going to go into a new department that has a new culture that may or may not be the same, that may be a challenge. Um, you have gone to a few different hospitals. You've seen some different practices as you've been in training. And you see how the cultures can be different. Um, and you can imagine that for someone to leave one practice after having done something a certain way for 10 years and go into a new practice, uh, there may be some challenges in that adjustment. Cool. And to kind of sort of summarize everything that we're talking about, what's like the typical timeline for someone who's coming out of residency um, is starting to get interested in jobs, when should they start reaching out to you? Yeah, most hires are based on the academic calendar. So most people are getting hired to start in the summertime, July or August. Um, it takes about three months to credential providers with hospitals and with insurers. And it takes at least that amount of time to get a medical license in a state. So typically you'd wanna have a job lined up at least three to four months prior to your hopeful start date. I would say more typically people are getting their jobs six to seven months in advance. So a typical cycle for us is people reach out in the spring to summer of their, let's say CA two year if they're not doing a fellowship, uh, with the idea that they would interview in the fall of their CA three year in hopes to have locked down a job by the winter. That also works well for most practices because, again, I'm hiring on the same cycle. A lot of people are interested in a job that starts in July or August. It does take some time to plan for staff, right? We need to make sure that we have enough cases and enough revenue to support the staff we're going to hire. And you can only project that so far. So projecting that for the next year is very reasonable. And as such, we are often creating what I'll call a budget for the July, let's say 24 in this case around now in July or we're in May of, June of 2023. Mm -hmm. So most people I tell reach out in the spring to summer. Sometimes if I get someone who reaches out too early, I will just quickly reply to them and say, hey, you're a little early in the process. We're not far enough along in staff planning. Um, the summer is typically a busy time to be setting up lots of interviews anyway. Once you reach back out to me in August, we'll set something up for September, October. As the job market changes, sometimes we have to adjust, right? When the job market is tight, I may try to uh, get people in earlier. When the job market was favorable to the practices, 
I might push things out a little later because again, it just gives us a better idea of what our planning is going to look like. Um, so I, again, I think as a resident, you want to be looking to reach out and make contact in the spring to summer about a year before you're looking for a job. Doesn't mean you can't find a job that starts in four months, um, but you don't want to necessarily rely on that in uh, in a tough, tight marketplace. Cool. And how many rounds of interviews do we do here at um, Rhode Island Hospital? It's typically just one. So the process here usually starts with an email to me. Um, I will then reach back out with a phone call. So some evening I'll call the, the uh, prospective applicant and ask a number of questions about their clinical goals, what their desires are for practice, what their geographic goals are, and then take some time to articulate what our practice is like. Make mm -hmm. sure to tell them what type of clinical care we do, uh, where I would see most people fitting into the paradigm of our staff, um, make sure they know about Providence, Rhode Island. And at the end of the conversation, make sure that there's at least some idea that there's mutual agreement that this could be a good fit. Assuming that there is, which most of the time there is, uh, I then sort of set up a scheduled interview where they come to Rhode Island for the day. Typically, a lot of our applicants are from the area and they'll just mm -hmm. come for the day. Occasionally, people coming from a little farther away will come in the night before, in which case I'll try to set up a dinner or some sort of other social engagement just to give them another opportunity to connect. But the real goal of the interview is to, again, assess that match, right? It's to assess hey, is this someone who I think I want to work with? And it goes mm -hmm. both ways. I tell the applicants this all the time, like you are interviewing us as much as we're interviewing you. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to approach your interviews that way. Uh, you have to approach it as like, I need to make sure this is a group that I could work with, that I want to be part of. Um, mm -hmm. I tell people to make sure you understand the decision processes that occur in a practice and make sure that the leadership has a vision that aligns with yours. Because um, you can imagine there are a lot of different cultures. Some people are heavily focused on revenue and uh, how much money they're gonna make. Some people are more focused on the type of research they can do or conduct. Some people wanna like provide clinical care in only a certain realm, like only in cardiac or only in pediatrics. And those things you have to start to figure out in this early interview process. Uh, so it requires a lot of questions. Here, the way we set the interview is usually one day where I have to meet five to seven staff. I usually try to find a diverse set of staff, meaning uh, people who do different specialties, people who have been in the practice for a couple of years, people who have been in the practice for a long period of time. I try to make sure they talk with people who do quality, people who do our schedule, maybe the people who coordinate the floor on a given day, so they can get a different perspective from each of those participants. Obviously, the most important, in my opinion, is meeting our chair, because that's where the vision comes from. Mm -hmm. That person needs to sort of say, oh, this is the vision for the department. Do you think that's going to fit for you? And equally important, here's where I see you potentially fitting, right? Because again, that needs to be a two-way street. Um, if you bring someone in who ultimately is not going to enjoy the strategy or the pathway to the practice, it's a lot of effort for someone to then potentially turn around and leave because they're unhappy or maybe even worse, stay unhappy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, so it's, it's a long process for sure, um, but it's, uh, it's worthwhile taking your time. I also encourage people to interview at multiple jobs before committing. Um, some practices really try to get you to commit early and I understand that we've done that ourselves. Um, I try to, again, have an open dialogue with the applicant and to ask them, hey, where else are you looking? What's your time horizon for looking at those roles? Do you think you're going to have a sense of what roles or opportunities are available to you at a certain date or time? 
Um, I tell them if they do get pressure from another practice to reach out to me and let me know because if I can provide them information about whether we would be interested in them in our practice, I would do that. Mm -hmm. uh, again, an open dialogue is a, is a key element to that recruitment process. And I think again, it goes both ways. People do keep some cards close to the vest and I totally understand that. We do as a practice to some degree as well. But I think the more open you can be, the more honest you can be, the more likely you're gonna have success in the recruitment process, especially if you're a reasonably high quality practice. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Devignan. I appreciate you giving so much insight into this process because I know it can be very foreign, especially if you've never come out of it as a new graduate and you don't really know what to expect, but it's really useful hearing your perspective um, from the employers and what you're kind of looking in an applicant. So thanks for shedding some light on that. You're very welcome. And uh, yeah, I think, again, hopefully your listeners ask a lot of questions of their own faculty. I think that was the statement you made, which is really key to be inquisitive ask people how they got where they got to, you're always going to find little piece of information that you didn't expect to when those, when those conversations happen. Absolutely. Well, thanks for taking this time after a post-call day. I know we had a busy night last night, so I think we're both a little tired this morning, I'm sure. So hope you get some rest today and I'll chat with you soon. Sounds good, Kenny. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, get a little rest yourself. All right. I'll talk to you later.